What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Pohada Podcast. As usual, I am Matt Browse of Pohada Photography. Please do check out at Pohada Photography on Instagram. No teaser clip at the start of this one because I don't want anything my friend Jillian has said here to be taken out of context. It's arguably a serious episode this time, being the first of our Tapping Out Trauma series. Thank you to Jillian for sharing her experience with jiu-jitsu as a therapeutic tool, as well as being brave enough to share some very personal details. There's a lot of great information and perspective here, but it's worth noting a strong trigger warning related to sexual assault. Without further ado, my conversation with my friend and teammate, Jillian. What do you think is a cool like episode series title name for this? I don't know. Titles are not my forte. Titles are definitely my forte. I'm, I'm an academic that just throws a semicolon in. Mm. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, academic papers have really long titles because they want to tell you as much as possible in the title. And we ha- aren't creative. Right. So. Hyper oxidative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Honestly, what do you think of this? As, right. So you got... Like booze with a black belt. That's a series of episodes. Yeah. Matt side musings. Mm-hmm. Alliteration is a theme here. I like it. Yeah, I'm in. Um, something along the lines of tapping out trauma. Ooh, I like it. You do? Yeah, and it's not too like. What's the word? Shitty. <laughs> it's not shitty. Okay. But it's not too um. Like dismissive. I don't know. I don't know what the word is. I can't think of what it is. But yeah, I like it. Like victimizing language or something like it's not patronizing. Thank you. There we That's go. What I That's what I was going for too. <laughs> yes. I couldn't think of it either. So, Jillian. Yes. This is the first episode of the series, whose name we're going to just commit to right here and now and call it "Tapping Out Trauma." I'm into it. So start us off strong tell me about yourself um so i am a phd candidate at the university of minnesota sociology department i study quite uplifting things i study genocide and civil war particularly the genocide in rwanda and the civil war in sierra leone and i'm a blue belt at minnesota top team why do you study that i don't know i studied abroad when I was in undergrad in Rwanda and Uganda just because I was really interested in peace and conflict studies and kind of just fell in love with Rwanda and kind of the things that I found puzzling about the the genocide and post-conflict reconstruction and just kind of have been studying it since. So your interest in studying that came from studying abroad in Rwanda and Uganda. And Uganda. Yep. What prompted you to study abroad in those countries? Um, I was an international studies major. And so part of that was I took a lot of classes on um, African politics and just naturally was really interested in the region. And it kind of just grew from there. And studying abroad is always fun, right? Like if you can get credits to go abroad. I should have done it. I didn't <laughs> Everyone do it. should do it. <laughs> yeah. I remember people going to like Europe, like to have mm-hmm. a good time and pretend to study international business. Yeah pretend i went on safari (laughs) would you call it that or are you just saying that no no i think like that i like literally went on a safari yeah (laughs) i mean like you had that part of the experience as well as 
for sure. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. And it was an experiential learning program. So you lived in homestays. I wasn't in like a dorm room. Um, I lived with families and really got to see how um, Rwandans live and how what their day-to-day is like. You're going back, right? Yes. Tell me about that. So I leave in one week, September 1st. Um, I'll do six months in Sierra Leone, in Freetown, the capital, and then I'll do six months in Kigali, Rwanda. Why those spots? Well, like I said, I was interested in Rwanda, and so I kind of started my dissertation research looking at Rwanda. But a lot of people only compare genocides to genocides because we have this idea that genocide is the hierarchy of crimes, right? It's like the worst crime. And so some people feel, particularly academics, um, feel that if you compare a genocide to a case of non-genocide, that it's a form of denialism or relativism. However, there's a lot of other scholars that see merit in comparisons and that they're not necessarily, you're not drawing a false equivalency, but you're comparing and contrasting to see what we can learn about large-scale political violence or mass violence more in general. So it was important to me to compare the genocide or post-conflict Rwanda to post-conflict Sierra Leone, which was a civil war. And so my my dissertation looks at how um, people who have experienced violence teach it to the next generation. So it was important for me to have another conflict that occurred during the same time period as the Rwandan genocide. So Sierra Leone fit. Expand on people teach conflict to the next generation. Yeah. So in Rwanda, you had a genocide, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1994. Um, so a lot of people who experienced the genocide are now, you know, having children and or, or teachers in classrooms. And so how did those people who actually experienced the violence teach and educate the, the younger generations about it? And this is a really interesting and pivotal moment because you have people who actually experience the violence teaching it. So it's that, like that first intergenerational transmission of knowledge. So it's this is really important for how it will be passed down in future generations because we have that first instance of people who experienced it, teaching it to people who are not alive yet. So it's maybe like my grandfather telling my father about Pearl Harbor and then my father telling me and the difference of the experience of the exchange of knowledge from one generation to the next. Absolutely. And in like academic terms or in sociology of knowledge, we'd say that this knowledge becomes institutionalized, right, through textbooks and different teaching mediums in the media. And then as it becomes institutionalized, it becomes reified, right? Like that's the story that becomes real. Like it doesn't get much, doesn't really get debated as much the longer that narrative lasts. So this first transmission of knowledge or this first telling of the story has a lot of impact in a society, especially as it recovers from violence. So the first people to really pin down the narrative, whoever is sort of in power or has control of the expression of ideas at the time, probably dictate four generations later the heart of what's being taught about the topic yes and of course there are times where textbooks are rewritten power Mm -hmm. changes and things happen Mm -hmm. but like by and large yes this so it's like a it's a big moment essentially so you're going over there to do what fundamentally yeah so I will be sitting in history or social studies or civics classrooms watching how the civil war the genocide is taught I'll be interviewing teachers and I'll be interviewing parents and then also doing kind of interviews with Ministry of Education folks to kind of get an idea of like what was included in the curriculum, what were some debates that happened, why this, why not that kind of stuff. 
Well, in Sierra Leone, this is the first year that they've taught the Civil War. They had a moratorium on teaching. So this is a big moment for them. Um, and then I was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to go to Sierra Leone. And part of that is engaging with the community. So I may or may not be teaching self-defense to some women over there, which will be kind of cool to be passing on some elements of jiu-jitsu. I don't love the whole like self-defense seminar thing. That's not what I'm saying, but it's more like exposing kind of women and giving women a space to do this. If it's culturally appropriate, I need to get a better understanding of that first. And that's why you said may or may not, because you're not sure on the logistics. Exactly. I don't want to be kind of like the colonizer that goes to Sierra Leone and sure. like, here, this is my culture or Brazilian culture, but like, here's this, it might be a transgression in your culture and I'm going to get you in trouble for doing this. Sure. Sure. So, Well, and that aside, and even the like limitations of you and I going to a Saturday seminar aside, if it's something that is culturally appropriate and is even a slight dabbling in a skill set that would be positive, cool, do the seminar, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. What would you teach relative to self-defense if you get to do it? Yeah, I think I would do some more of those like kind of Gracie fundamentals. I know they have like the book, but I think I would do like attacks from the behind, from the back. I'm um, standing and I think I would do some like basic mount escapes, things like that. Basic grip breaks, honestly. I think that's probably one of the most valuable things that we overlook a lot of times. It's like how to break someone's grip if they grab your arm. Yeah, how to hopefully get in the way of the arm that's around my neck from fully squeezing something simple like that for sure or even just a wrist grab you know as someone walks by you just knowing what way to pull your arm i think that's really important other than peaked interest in your academic years do you have personal experience that drove you to any of these interests jujitsu self-defense helping others yeah i mean for for jiu-jitsu, I feel like it all kind of culminated around the same time. Um, when I was an undergrad, probably about a few months actually before I studied abroad in Rwanda and Uganda, I was assaulted by a police officer. Um, and he, so in that event, I was um, I was raped, uh, to be specific. Um, I was raped by a police officer in my own house. Um, it was a police officer that I knew because I worked on on Beale Street in Memphis. So we became very familiar with a lot of the police officers. Um, but he ended up using the police database to find my address, showed up at my house. Um, long story short, was assaulted, was reported the next day. Um, and it was like a, it was a really long process, honestly, kind of going through it because it took about six months for them to even indict him or <laughs> arrest him, quite frankly. Um it got to the point where I didn't know if it was going to be kind of pushed, like swept under the rug because I was a police officer. Um, then I went abroad for, you know, some time and then I came back and later in that year it went to, it went to court and he was convicted of, I think it was one felony count of rape, one, one misdemeanor assault and felony misconduct, which would be like using the police database. So he was um, sentenced to 13 years in prison, two of which were served concurrently with one of the other sentences. So 11 years total. So I think he gets out in 2023. Um, So for a long time um, after that experience, especially in Rwanda, I really struggled with not feeling safe. And for some context, Rwanda is kind of a police state. So everywhere I walked, there were police officers and that was really tough for me. Um, For a long time, like 
a police officer in uniform really freaked me out. And I would and I would say it still freaks me out, but much, much less. I feel like I deal with it much better than I did, you know, 10 years ago or almost 10 years ago. Um, and so for me, you know, I didn't feel safe for a long time. I didn't feel safe in my own home. I didn't want to be alone in my own home. And that was really tough for me. So I started getting into boxing to think of like kind of um, a way to like defend myself. It was more of a fitness boxing, (laughs) not quite self-defense what I would think now, but it did get me there. And then I got in a ring uh, with a coach and did some kind of, um, I wouldn't call it sparring, but he held pads, kind of worked on more defense. Um, And then someone came up behind me and grabbed me and they're like, well, what would you do? And I was like, can I swear? (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I'm fucked. <laughs> yeah, I prefer you to swear. <laughs> okay. I'm totally fucked if right. someone grabs me this way. Like, I can't punch them. Like, they're strong. And that kind of led me down the road to jiu-jitsu and grappling. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's essentially what brought me to jiu-jitsu specifically. And I'm so glad I've been in jiu-jitsu because I honestly think it's been the best thing for some of, like, the PTSD I've had because of my assault and the trauma of the trial and all of those things. Um, yeah. It seems like there's a very, people think of it as a practical thing. Somebody grabs you. What do you do? How do you move? Which, duh. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally. Right. Mm -hmm. But the part that escapes my ability to understand it, like I take it on face value from a good number of people so far that the, other than like, you know, a slight feeling of claustrophobia when I first started and one of the other big guys is smothering me. Okay, duh. But, and, and I suppose experiencing that that is not as terrible now as it was a year and a half ago or two and a half years ago or whatever. But my ability personally to comprehend, you know, the PTSD symptoms in general and how mm-hmm. training for jujitsu can help one with that, I got none. Yeah. Enlighten me. Yeah. It's, it's been really helpful. And I think I've well, learned. Well, like Why? Can you, can yeah, you yeah. explain um, like what the mechanism is or... So your body remembers trauma, sometimes trauma that your mind doesn't. And so in the beginning, I think I rolled with like a brown belt who was much bigger than me and he pinned me. And I was so pissed because I'd, I think I was like a three-stripe white belt and I was like, surely I should know how to get out of a pinning. Like this takes no technique, which I was totally misinformed to pin someone takes a lot of technique, which Correct. I didn't understand at the time. Correct. But was so pissed because it was like, I should be able to do something. I was so frustrated. And at this point, I had done a lot of privates with Zach Jeffrey, who's really helped me so much um, kind of work on a lot of self-defense aspects so that I feel more confident when I go abroad and just in general everyday life. Um, And Zach kind of, and I had a kind of um, a very honest chat after about how it's not just the moves that I'm learning. It's learning to be comfortable in uncomfortable positions. It's learning to not panic. It's learning to control your breathing, to evaluate what's going on. And those are the skills that are actually probably going to help if I ever am attacked again. It's not just the moves. It's becoming comfortable and confident in in scary, risky challenging situations and I think that's the point of jiu-jitsu for me or what has been the point of jiu-jitsu for me although that was not what I thought it would be when I began but that's been the like the lesson I'm taking from it or the thing that's helped me the most is kind of working through those positions and like I said your you know your body holds memory that your mind might not 
might not remember. So to have someone pinning you can feel like claustrophobic. It can be kind of triggering if you've been assaulted. Um, and to be able to work through that in a really safe place with a community of people that just want to see you get better is, I don't, there are kind of no words for it, like how awesome that is, how great that is, that that's an opportunity um, that I've had. And I'm just so grateful to like Zach and my teammates and honestly, just Jeremy and Jenny so much for like the environment that they've created at that gym for me to come in and feel so safe. And, and I would add that like most of my training partners don't know this about me. This is not like, not like crying on the mat, you know, it's like, they're not going easy with me. I would say that only like a handful actually know about my experience and why I'm in jujitsu. Yeah. Till now. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> Secrets out guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, if I do a three hour seminar for self-defense on a Saturday and they teach me to put my hands here when that arm comes around from behind and to shift my hips this way and to step that way. Really the skill I need to do all that is the composure mm-hmm. in a scenario where I'm being loudly aggressively grabbed from behind. Like that's the real skill. Like you said, Zach said, doesn't matter where you put your hands if you you're, you know, blindly freaking out, panicking, shaking for whatever reason. Right. right? The composure comes first and then, and then the technique and then you after can execute. that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I have a friend who has to take the day off work when it rains. I'm sure you deduced very quickly why that would mm-hmm. be. Um, what do you think of recommending to people who you know are in that situation to do jujitsu or any kind of martial art at the level I'm talking, which is this is a casual friend, a couple of professional interactions. I know Mm -hmm. her through a different gym, that kind of thing. I think it's so different for different people. I could see Mm -hmm. this being so triggering and re-traumatizing for some. And for people like myself, it's been really empowering. And don't get me wrong. I've had days where like it was not a good day and I shouldn't shouldn't have often if I'm having a rough day kind of in terms of like PTSD stuff going to the gym helps but there are those days where I should have just stayed home like Mm -hmm. that was a rough day so I think it really depends on the person and their kind of how much they've kind of worked through their own trauma but I do think like oh if it's a female like a woman's class could be really helpful as like a way to kind of reach that easily um, to roll with women, have women's weight on you versus kind of maybe reenacting like kind of a trauma situation. There's um, a likely extra associative layer that might not be there in a women's class. For sure. And for me, like I didn't roll with police officers for a long time. I ducked them. I ducked them hard at the gym. And that's like become a recent thing for me being more comfortable rolling with law enforcement officers. Um, so I, and it could be something as simple as like, well, that man looks like that, the man that attacked me. So I'm staying away from them. Mm-hmm. It could be, it could be a, so different for each person, I think. Um, but I don't think there's harm in maybe suggesting and seeing if they'd be open to it. Yeah. Say, Hey, keep this on your list of mm-hmm. considerations over the next 10 years or whatever. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I know of other women who have been assaulted that do jujitsu and feel the same way I do. Um, I just don't think everyone's as vocal and that's each and every person's choice to be as open or private as they want with mm-hmm. that. Of course. How many places have you trained jujitsu? Just, well, like just two. I started at a place in New Hampshire for a couple months, then came to MTT. I mean, of course I've dropped in at M theory quite mm-hmm. a bit mm-hmm. and I've kind of dropped into gyms when I travel, but 
your community is MTT. For sure, yes. How was the experience at the first place? It was good. I think I didn't know what I didn't know at that point. I think that's probably 100% true. Yeah. And I, like, the people were all really nice. It was a lot of guys. I think I was the only girl that would at least go to the 6 a.m. classes. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know to wear a rash guard. I'm actually really embarrassed when I look back at that experience. You know, I just wore, like, a workout t-shirt or, like, a tank top. Um but I, I view MTT as my home. Like I didn't have any stripes or promotions or anything at my first gym. It kind of just introduced me to it in a way. And then I started kind of really fresh at MTT and really just, I I just cannot say enough nice things. And it's not, it's not like me trying to promote MTT. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, Jenny is just a wonderful human being. And I remember, you know, inquiring about the gym and her calling me and I was kind of asking the culture of the gym, trying to see if, you know, I needed to wear just like a white gi or buy their gi. That was like the logistics of like what it would be like. And she went out of her way to talk to me about all the women at the gym and how great they were. And that was just such a selling point for me. Um, and then you get on the mat, you know, and you had, I had Zach as one of my first coaches and Jeremy, and they're just, they're just good people. They want to see you succeed and they wanted to help me. And I talked to Zach about doing privates um, to kind of really work on self-defense so that I would feel prepared for when I did my dissertation research abroad. And he was just so great about that. You know, at one point, I think we threw in on MMA gloves and kind of did light striking while rolling. He was just, they're just good people and like want to see you succeed. And it's, if you want to compete, they're all in for it. But if you're like me and you just really want to f- use it to feel confident and like kick someone's ass if they try to bother you you know like they're all for that too and so that it's just been a really great experience there well my sense is that's actually zach's focus is first and foremost those interested in keeping themselves and others safe and then also if you want to compete which is kind of a different way of thinking about it from the culture overall of bjj lately absolutely so very on that note very glad i or lucky Mm -hmm. that i ended up there um it's been great. And into as like a caveat, um, I get nervous about talking about, um, you know, training jiu-jitsu to feel safe in Africa because I think it tends to kind of pathologize Africa as a continent. And I don't mean because Africa as a continent is unsafe or that Rwanda or Sierra Leone are unsafe, but that as a female solo traveler going into people's homes, I don't know, that is an unsafe mm-hmm. behavior situation action so just to like clarify right right well i would i you know not that i would know anything about it but i feel like i would recommend the same thing if you're doing a similar project here exactly you're going into people's homes exactly but i think people here you know oh she does jujitsu because she's going to africa and right oh I can it's see, just I can kind of like that. a gross narrative that i yes. don't want to feel like i'm personally like supporting that yeah, narrative you're doing it for a universal truth exactly here there anywhere 100 percent yeah, I think the overall gym culture at a given gym, good sentence there, uh, is a dumb sentence too, is like the most important thing. It really is. For anybody there, but particularly people with, you know, certain specific concerns. Absolutely, yeah. In terms of, like, like there's a... Um, I approached a gal the other day after I rolled with her for the first time, who frequents both of our gyms. And I said, do you remember many, many, many months ago here uh, being rolled with disrespectfully? 
I guess I'll put it that way, mm-hmm. aggressively maybe, mm-hmm. by uh, someone who was, I guess I'd phrase it like higher up on the current power dynamic. Okay. Not necessarily a higher belt. That's not yeah, what yeah. I mean. It's the first thing I thought of after I said it out loud. But someone who could take advantage of their physical attributes regardless of skill set mm-hmm. and being really broken up over that, mm-hmm. she was. And I wasn't there. I was told the story. Mm-hmm. And actually, she kind of interrupted me and asked uh, who told me about that. And I said, the same person who sorted it out for you afterward, mm-hmm. which sounded really Hollywood dramatic. <laughs> like we, you know, like the mafia, we figured it out. Yeah. But all it was, was uh, a like being supplied the perspective she got during that role on the next role by someone who saw you know, an unfairness taking place and not in an aggressive way, not in like the mad enforcer way, but I Mm -hmm. guess sort of also in like the mad enforcer way a little bit, but with a respectful, you know, bump and slap hands at the beginning and at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that kind of thing of the investment of everybody on the mat, not just the person leading the class or the person that owns the gym, but everybody sort of watching and looking out for you is is a good, healthy culture, regardless of whatever my personal experiences might be coming into the situation. For sure. Yeah. I think that's so important. I think, I mean, I think a lot of times the women do it for each other too, which is like, like, I'm really grateful. I think to have, you know, Angela and Tracy, they're like my closest training partners. We, we go hard, but you know, if they see some, some new white belt or some new person, maybe visiting the gym, kind of roughing up their girls, Mm -hmm. they're going to remind them that, you know, that, that ego is not welcome here and we don't like that. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the culture at MTT. I think, I think it's a really welcoming gym. I think everyone really does support each other and, and it's just, it's great. So what do you do to defend yourself? Go on where you're going, doing what you're doing. What kind of things have you been doing? What kind of things have you been focusing on? Like in the gym specifically? Sure. Could it be even just be techniques, situational awareness, ideas, Yeah, I think for me, um, really focusing on grip breaks is important. I think kind of feeling more comfortable with a takedown game. Honestly, this sounds so stupid and so silly, but so important. And Jeremy, like I thank Jeremy for this. He's like, why why are you pressuring in all the time? Back up. You like even in a competitive aspect, like you're charging forward, trying to pass someone's guard. He's like, you can back up. You can back up and kind of reset the role. And I think in a self-defense aspect, right, like the self-defense is getting the hell out of there. It's not trying to finish a fight in the street on an unpaved road. It's getting out of there. And I think that's really important and being able to see where I can like get out of uh, positions or scenarios is important too. Um, But honestly, I feel like more or less for me recently has been just getting as much mat time and rolling and just getting kind of body awareness and things like that just in cardio, getting that cardio up for sure. Oh, don't bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it for us for the sport and for self defense? Any kind of martial art is a space game. Mm-hmm. Am I close enough? Am I not close enough? Am I far fucking enough away to not have to deal with this? Can I get to the point where I don't have to deal with it? Absolutely. We think and we think attack. Yes. We get into that habit because I'm supposed to get past this person's legs. Yes. Etc. And knowing where that exit is. And I would add that, you know, Jeremy, I, I injured my shoulder in January, but or actually it was before January, but I had surgery on my shoulder 
shoulder in January. But before that, Jeremy kind of brought out some pads and did some striking with Angela and I. And that was super helpful. Some strikes, some leg kicks, kind of mixing that all together and kind of seeing how you can transition between kind of striking and more jujitsu. Fighting. Fighting, yes. Yeah. Yes. Fighting. Well said. It's all fighting. It's all fighting. I guess like potentially maybe as some general advice and sticking to like the majority of sexual assault victims are women. I'm not saying men cannot be, but I'm speaking from that perspective as a female myself is that, you know, I think it's one in four college age women have had been victims of an attempted sexual assault or a completed one. And I think it's like one in six of all women. So the odds are in your gym, you've rolled with women and something that I feel like I've seen a lot particularly with new people in the gym is like it's typically not how you roll with the woman it's the shit that comes out of your mouth when you roll and I think a lot of times guys can say some like rapey shit and and I've seen it affect women in the gym you know not just at my gym but at other gyms I've been at and just like keeping that I think that's helpful for people to remember to when they roll with women or with anybody honestly just like you're in a you're in a very intimate setting and very precarious positions oftentimes and like just be mindful of I guess what comes out of your mouth my unsolicited advice no it's solicited that's absolutely a solicited position I love it um then there's probably a reason that the people who are best at jujitsu and best at fighting talk the least while they do it yeah. And I mean, I'm all for some shit talk. Like same. Jeremy Clark is my coach. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm all for some shit talk. But there is this line of like, well, what are you going to do now? Like really rapey shit sometimes that like escalates. And it's like, this is gross. Like knock it off. It's also kind of a knowing your audience thing. For sure. Like I've rolled with you one time ever. I have a decent like sense of your like personality and your style. But I've still rolled with you one time ever. For sure. I'm also a big, ugly, scary prick too. Like, again, know you and know your audience, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's different, right? Like when you know exactly when you have that relationship or rapport with someone, you can kind of say some different things. But like to the new people that kind of come in a gym and like think they're being funny, which is often couched in so much gendered bullshit as it is. Mm -hmm. So I would just be aware of that. Yeah, not everyone gets to roll like ryan dixon and angela totally (laughs) where it's as much shit talking as it is (laughs) jujitsu and weird laughter over weird things like they have a vibe they know their deal don't try to do that until you're in that spot for sure yeah absolutely and just recognizing i think that like you know not i'm like a firm believer of like not every no one owes you their story and so you probably don't know that you're rape you're you're rolling with people that have been like sexually assaulted or attempted assaults or you you just don't know their story at all. And so like maybe just watch yourself a little bit and what comes out of your mouth in a very intimate setting. Or one that feels like very exposed. I don't know if intimate's the right word, but you feel exposed, I think, at times. Well, I think of intimacy as like how close we are. Yeah, yeah. I for guess sure. that's a piece of my definition in my brain. Yeah. So you're intimate. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're right here wrapped around each other. You're sweating in someone's eyeball. (sighs) I usually say mouth. You're sweating in my mouth. I think the eye freaks me out a little bit more, to be quite honest. That's why I say mouth, because the (laughs) eye freaks me out. What if you don't want to roll with me? 
I think, I think honestly, that's why it's good to have like a good community. Cause I, I have no problem going up to, and I don't want to be rude to anyone. So I, I have a hard time telling you, I don't want to roll with you, even though I know it's perfectly legit. Um, and especially at MTT, we're very much encouraged or told to, you know, mm-hmm. roll with who you feel comfortable with. But I, I typically will just, you know, just grab someone else and be like, Hey, I just, I don't, I'm trying to avoid this person or like, I don't want to roll with this person or, or, or roll with me, please. Or like sometimes honestly, the guys know that, that we have a couple bigger guys that, you know, kind of go ham and don't, don't feel necessarily the most safe rolling with. And so, you know, you, you look at TJ and go, TJ, come be my partner or Phil, come be my partner. You know? Well, somebody with whom you have the rapport, there's the understanding. For sure. That's a piece of the community thing. It's me mm-hmm. and this person, me and this person, me and this person, which is specific to this scenario, but also just in the most abstract sense, that's the whole point of doing it at all, is you're developing a network of people with whom you can have trusted interactions with. For sure. I like when people just say, yes, I agree. Yes. It makes me sound and feel really <laughs> insightful. I think one of the reasons jujitsu is a good outlet for maybe someone who has trauma or for me who had experienced PTSD in the aftermath of assault, I think is that it's really hard to think about other things when someone's choking you. <laughs> like you have to, it's, it's weirdly meditative where you have to focus on the one thing in front of you. I'm not sitting there, you know, listing the list of things in my head that I have to do that day or, or, you know, kind of having more subtle flashbacks, or I think they call them intrusive memories of like an assault, right? Like you're sitting there and being like, no, I have to focus on this one technique or this role. And it kind of lets you push all the other bullshit aside. And I think that's been really helpful in terms of jujitsu for me is just having an outlet where I don't have to think about anything else and you can shut the rest of the world out. And then it's, like I said, it's been really empowering too. I think after I was assaulted as I mentioned safety was a huge issue for me I really did not feel safe I had like a lot of hyper vigilance of like kind of my head on a swivel all the time kind of looking everywhere you know everyone was an enemy at a t- at times and it's really just allowed me to mellow out and be like a lot more confident and just and just appreciate kind of where I'm at and kind of stop freaking out and thinking about all the negative or potential ways something could turn into an unsafe situation and just kind of exist and like I said I think you know being pulled over by a police officer particularly because that's a situation where I'm in the least amount of power possible and you're wearing kind of um, a uniform that triggers not a great not a great memory for me um, is still tough but I will say and they don't even know this but like the police officer's and law enforcement officers that I've rolled with at the gym have really like helped me change my perspective of police officers and and be less like have a less visceral reaction to them and again like they don't they have no clue it's kind of it's kind of right it's kind of helped to kind of renormalize or rehumanize that relationship I guess yeah and it's just uh it's just a person and I think I should I should say that you know when I was assaulted, um, one of my one of my good friends, a college graduate, um, was also a police officer, and he's actually the one that reported it um, because he was the fir- my, he was my first call that I made. It was like, did 
did you give so-and-so my address? Because that, that was the part for me that I was like stuck on was like, how did this person get my address? Like nothing else in that moment mattered, which is apparently very common for people who've experienced traumas. Like you fixate on one element that might not even be the most salient or important or worst element of it. But I just could not figure out how this person had gotten my address. And, um, you know, I called him and he's like, I need to call you back and immediately reported it, um, which was which was a bold decision on his part. It was the right decision, but it was bold. Um but a big reason why I won my trial or why he was convicted was because that same friend, a police officer, testified against this other guy um, who he had gone to. Um, they, they trained together. They went to the training academy together. And so it was, it was big. It made big news in Memphis. Let me tell you, it was all over the papers of like police officer testifies against other officer. So it's not that I don't think that there are good law enforcement officers by any means or anything like that, but for me, that was that was my friend. It wasn't a police officer in that moment. Like, that was my friend that supported me. And so to have other police officers at the gym that maybe I kind of, like, ducked for a while but now feel comfortable rolling with has really helped in kind of what you said, like, the normalizing it and just kind of taking away that initial reaction of, like, I can't be around you. Well, and it, it makes sense that that would be big news because, you know, I couldn't cite your stats on this sort of thing, but I think a lot of us probably have a perception that there's sort of a protective mode within certain quote unquote brotherhoods, you know, that are high enough up, up high enough up on, you know, power scales to do that kind of thing and then mm-hmm. get away with it. And I think there were elements of that in my case. There was definitely elements of like you know, how long it took to arrest him and charge him and certain things that happened in that case that there were elements of people watching out for him. My friend who reported him was ostracized within his own department. Um, And like, I think the world of him, right? Like, to me, that is a good man. That is, I I can't say enough nice things about him. Um, To have the moral character, to do that immediately, you know, to hang up the phone with me and report your friend I think it was his like former partner. I can't remember. I don't want to butcher those details, but like mm. what a good person, you know, like that takes some like fortitude, like Even, some moral courage. Yes. Yeah. Even just the peer pressure of the situation. Absolutely. There's a lot of influential eyes looking at you from one side of this thing, right? Absolutely. And I didn't know if I wanted to report it cause I knew the shit short shit storm that was about to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, he kind of forced my hand there and again, like I'm glad it happened. Um, I'm glad he was, it went to trial, like he was convicted, it was reported. Um, but like, it wasn't me saying I want to report this. Like he just kind of went for it, you know, and took the initiative because he knew that was the right thing to do. Um, so yeah. There seems to be a parallel between the problematic relationship you had with police officers as a result of this. And, you know, the whole power structure Mm -hmm. implication thing. And some of these headlines we've seen recently about owners and head instructors and big time black belts of jujitsu gyms Mm -hmm. as like a sort of ultimate violation of trust Mm -hmm. and position. Yeah. For sure. I've been like trying to follow this and read it as much um, and kind of get an understanding of it. And I think... You know, I think people often think of 
like rape and sexual assault as like a sexual act. I mean, it's in the term, right? Sexual assault, but it's really about power and it's about abusing that power. So it makes sense to me that where you have a hierarchy that people will abuse that power. And I think, I can't remember, I was reading about this and I don't remember who said it, but like just because you have a black belt does not mean you're a good person. Like often people with black belts, I think, have shown, you know, a lot of great and positive features to stick with it and to get that black belt, you know, perseverance, they've given back to their community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of people out there who have committed sexual assault that most people would think appear to be a good person. And I think those things aren't like mutually exclusive or there are nuance and layers there. And it's really upsetting to me that the, that the thing that I feel like has helped me grow as a person, leaps and bounds, kind of overcome PTSD and my trauma is causing someone else trauma. Like that is disgusting and is so upsetting to me. I like read all these articles because I want to be in the know, but it's also like so incredibly distressing to me that someone would use their power to kind of, to make someone else feel that way. And I can't imagine what it would be like to feel like, you know, you're your instructor that's teaching you self-defense moves then uses those moves against you in like a similar setting um, to exert power and sexually assault you. Like that's... Particularly if you consider the reasons why that person, that woman, shall we say, Mm -hmm. might already be there for. Exactly. And I think that is like an ultimate violation, right? Um, And it's people you trust. And I think this actually brings me something I was like hoping... I wanted to say when I was thinking about like doing this podcast with you is that, you know, the moves are important, kind of like we said, but it is about like, um, it is about kind of becoming comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Like that's the primary kind of um, prevention mechanism, if you will, right? And then the moves are kind of more secondary. But I want to add that like rape often happens between two people that know each other. Like, it's not the stranger in a corner. That is, does it happen? Absolutely. But that is significantly less common than acquaintance rapes. So when we talk about preventing rape, we have to talk about the fact that, like, you have to overcome the fact that you know that person. And there's a shock that happens, right? Of, like, you're not supposed to be here. This isn't supposed to be happening. I trusted you. And there's, like, the, right, you have, like, your fight, fight, flight, and then most common, what we leave out often is freeze response. And I think that most, I won't say most people, but a lot of times what happens when you are assaulted is you freeze, especially when it's a person you know. And I think in the context of like a gym, right? Like, I think I would freeze, you know, you, you're like, you, you're trying to understand if that's happening or if it's not happening and having confidence in yourself to understand the situation, which I do think is another aspect of jiu-jitsu that is helpful, is like reading the situation, reading people's body languages. But it's, if we talk about jiu-jitsu as like a prevention mechanism, it's so much more than like that technique, right? It, it is like reading the entire scenario. But again, you have to deal with the fact that like the person that assaulting is assaulting you or attempting to assault you may be someone you know. And that's a whole different level. It's a violation of a different kind of trust. And how you react to that, right? Like in in real time and quickly. Right. Is I think it's different. You know, it's easy. It's almost, I don't want to make that comparison, but I think if it's a stranger in the corner, you see what's happening, you react. But when it's someone you know, 
that reaction time I think might be slower, right? You might give them the benefit of the doubt. You're trying to, you don't want to ruin a relationship you have with someone. Maybe it's your instructor, right? In these, in these kind of reports, like you don't want to ruin that. You're trying to like, is this happening? Is this not happening? Did I give the wrong impression? You know, there's so much more that goes into it, I think. It's easier to conceptualize some stranger over there might decide to do me harm. And I'm not going to ruin anything that I have with that person by sort of making it seem like I think that's the case. Absolutely. They might be offended, but they'll be offended by a stranger. Mm -hmm. And you're going to do everything. You're going to stab their eyes out, you know, everything you can think of (laughs) to defend yourself. But when it's someone you know, I think it, it changes the situation. We often don't talk about that. And I'm not trying to say one is worse than the other by Mm -hmm. any means. They're Mm -hmm. both horrible situations, but I think it changes the dynamics. Definitely. Different layers. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that was the comparison that was hiding in my brain as you would go to a police officer for help, in theory. This is the system. Mm-hmm. And you would also theoretically join a jiu-jitsu gym for help. Mm-hmm. So it's like an even extra layer other than familiarity, but like I came to you for help with this stuff and now it's being worked against me. Absolutely, yeah. There was an awesome parallel. I think he even phrased it exactly the same as TJ did when I had him on and we were talking about Mm. his We Defy guys because PTSD is PTSD, right? With some branches coming off, right? Mm -hmm. And he said that exact same thing. That's how he described the why jujitsu tends to be a helpful tool is you have to focus on this, this specific one thing. So whatever other stresses and anxieties and, you know, race running your brain might do kind of has to go by the wayside. It seems like a good parallel to draw that it's sort of a shared experience of the results of certain traumas not necessarily oh i was attacked or oh i was at war the body's response you know the body sort of keeps the score of whatever that trauma is absolutely and i think for me like i i mean it's been years since i was assaulted and i've really come to terms with everything and i feel like that part of my life doesn't really sneak up on me that much anymore but it does, right? Like it occasionally does. Like quite literally Monday, I got a letter in the mail from um, Tennessee, essentially, um, saying, um, you know, his second post-conviction relief appeal has been denied. We're eight years past and this is still going through the legal system. This is his second appeal and it was denied, which is great. I'm glad it was denied. But um you know, I was having a great day Monday. And then you get just get this piece of letter in the mail, you know, or this piece of this letter in the mail. Um, And it kind of, I think five, six years ago, that would have totally derailed my day. But, you know, I I just went to the gym and it was fine because I didn't have to focus on it. You know, I put it aside, you know, is what it is and you move on. And I think that's something that is really helpful with jujitsu is just kind of like you really can like, it lets you compartmentalize things for that one hour or two hours that you're on the mat it helps you to practice that exactly these sensations and these sensations and this thought and this thought i can keep them in their boxes better exactly and you know part of the appeal process you know you get the appeal you get the official like this is what the judges said this is legal argument and it kind of often recapitulates like summarizes the case and so it's really easy for that to kind of play in your head all day and so to get kind of get out of that is really helpful um, yeah, long-term effects of, <laughs> of sexual assault, which you don't think about, like you wouldn't think that this would still resurface within the court system this, this, after this many years. Um, right. 
Right. So I, I, think, I would think yeah. that actually, but I'm only you know, sort of vaguely <laughs> familiar with you know, the complexities of it all. Very fair. I liked your comment about the kind of who you would and wouldn't expect it to be. And I think there's for good or for bad, there's that massive uptick in interest in true crime stories mm. and serial killers and all the, all the bad in the world. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've passively into intake and taken and took, I've passively watched, let's say enough mm-hmm. of those. Cause my, my gal is a huge fan of those things. Yeah. And I've now fully sucked in on the couch next to her for the last <laughs> couple of years, just fully bought in. Yeah. And there's a couple of like, phrases that's guaranteed to come out of the narrator's mouth and Mm -hmm. one of them is something along the lines of no one would have expected Mm -hmm. oh yeah he was such a good guy yeah it was all so normal and nice yeah it's just sort of the hopefully that is like sort of the ultimate deception like it's not Mm -hmm. you know let let me just throw it out there like the crazy looking weird dude over Mm -hmm. there necessarily that's coming for you or the stranger per se Mm -hmm. it is the one who would have the easiest access to that, which means you're comfortable with them, mm-hmm. which means you know them and they mm-hmm. look nice, etc. Exactly. I'm actually really glad you brought that up. So um, as part of a, being a graduate student, um, I teach courses at the University of Minnesota. So this summer I taught my first course as instructor of record, and it was the sociology of killing. And, you know, you make your syllabus and what you want to teach and what you want to cover and then I asked kind of students, you know, what, what would they like to learn about? And of course, it was serial killers. Of course. And, you know, like if we look at killing, right, I'm thinking like we have genocide, we have war, we have the death penalty, you know, we have forms of state-sponsored killing, we have forms of interpersonal killing, and they pick the rarest kind of killing right. because that's what they watch on TV and they're really interested in it. And so my last week of the class, we did representations of killing in the media, and we really focused on serial killers and kind of gang killings and general homicide. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that actually, I have them kind of go through these myths and um, myths and truths. And one of the things that they didn't realize is, especially women, is like, we've been told our whole lives, you know, how to carry our keys to a car, you know, how to protect ourselves to kind of keep your head in a swivel, where to park in a parking garage. Like these things are taught to girls, like young girls, you know, from the time you have mm-hmm. a kind of an understanding And so they are so struck when they realize the majority of homicide victims are men and the majority of perpetrators are men. You are more likely to be a victim of homicide if you are a male. And that is like, they're they're so confused. They're like, why have we been socialized this way? And, And that is one of the biggest sticking points as well as different like, you know, statistics about serial killers. Mm -hmm. But like Mm -hmm. that I think is one of the most interesting takeaways they have in that class. It's that, that whole thing of how we, like the difference we of how we talk to little boys versus how we talk to little girls. One's big and strong, one's pretty and cute. Mm-hmm. And then as they age, the same sort of, uh, I guess, labeling language takes place. Like, mm-hmm. be ready for this because you're a victim mm-hmm. in this circumstance, mm-hmm. whether it's actually accurate or not. Is different. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are many ways that women are like, you know... Um, can be victimized like there there's merit to some of those narratives yeah, but there, sure. but there's there's some issues with that general narrative as well of course right like there's more nuance and complexity and i think you know when they learn about killing they they understand a little bit more about those complexities and and how problematic kind of media is and how you know they put forth these who is the perfect victim which can haunt honestly a lot of rape victims right um if they don't you know, play that role well. 
um, who who is portrayed as a perfect killer, um, who gets away with it kind of thing. And those narratives that the media um, puts out are really important. Hence my dissertation research. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, I'm going to take a stab at better advice for girls. All right. Being absolutely not in a position to do that kind of thing. I like to hear it. (laughs) So how did you describe it? Like be aware of your surroundings when you're in parking garages, you know, hold your keys as if they were going to be an effective weapon Mm -hmm. sort of thing. What about, um, so that obviously is not terrible advice. Mm Mm-hmm situations there's like, merit to like it. that will yeah. happen you know threat level yellow as the self-defense folks would say like there's a certain yeah. awareness you want all that but what about um something on, along the lines of like submissiveness and agreeableness and being spoken to and taught to be nice yeah you know like, be, like you're allowed to be rude if you don't feel comfortable things like that because that's going to apply i would assume better with interpersonal relationships which is where the victimization might happen yeah teach women to be rude but they don't need to be polite and i think i think of my my assault and i think any 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 victim survivor does this when you're like where did i what did i do wrong you know where could i've gone wrong and i i think like i could have been so much more direct in the like days months you know because i i had a relationship relationship being like acquaintance like I knew who this person was they gave me weird vibes um way more direct and rude you know but I he was my friend's friend and I was like trying to be nice and I you know I think about that a lot and if 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 my behavior in that situation of just being kind of like a bitch and been like not interested please leave me alone if things would have been different who knows they could have gone exactly the same right but I think that's so important is we need to teach women that they can say no or just people in general. But like we're talking about women here, right? So like mm-hmm. teach women to say no, to, that they don't have to be t- polite to the guy who approaches them. They they can tell people, no, I don't like want to give you my number. Or tell people to fuck off. Like I think that is so important. And so like when we talk, like we were saying like about like prevention for rape and things like that it's not just the techniques of jujitsu it's not punching someone it's getting comfortable in those positions getting comfortable being uncomfortable telling someone to fuck off telling them no telling them to leave you alone like that goes so far i think and then probably the best i'm I'm jumping on myself because we're drifting in a direction i don't like when i hear people talk about this stuff Mm -hmm. fully not an expert i don't know (laughs) but probably the best rape prevention is me not being a piece of shit yeah. and sexually assaulting somebody. Teaching right? men not to rape. How 100%. About, how about that? Yes. <laughs> yes. All asterisks aside, you know, like, absolutely. I think that if we're looking, we have to look at our culture as a whole and th- there are elements we need to focus on men. But I think there are things um, we can do to help women feel, yeah. empower yeah. women. Yep. Yeah. Any potential victim has things they can do to do better mm-hmm. and any potential piece of shit has things they can do to to be better absolutely 100 percent. feels a lot like a good stopping point it does feel like a good stopping point thank you thank you